Well, if you haven't already, please take your Bibles and find your way to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. If you remember the page number, I believe it was page number 556 in the few Bibles there. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. As we look into this next section of Ecclesiastes together, I thought it would be helpful for us just to give ourselves a little bit of a mental quiz. I'd like for you to think back on your past week. Do you remember Monday? Do you remember where you were and what you were doing at various times in your day? Can you remember Wednesday? Remember Wednesday was cold, we had some snow? As we each silently reflect on this past week, ask yourself, how often were you satisfied? How much of last week were you content? How much of last week did you find yourself frustrated or disappointed? Did you find yourself looking around externally or internally trying to find something that would bring satisfaction and pleasure again? The elusive and temporary nature of satisfaction on this earth is one of the main themes that Ecclesiastes is developing. It's a theme that the author has been exploring and developing throughout the book. And one way that the author develops that theme is by giving examples of some of the deep frustrations that life under the sun includes. And that phrase, life under the sun, is something that's repeated again and again. And so you're going to be hearing me repeat it again and again because that's the sphere of which his observations are made. It's as if the author's been walking through this museum of life under the sun, so to speak, and he stops by each display and he gives a summary of the enigmas and the frustrations that are experienced in this life under the sun. In Ecclesiastes chapter 6, we find ourselves confronted with more of those frustrating realities that life presents us. There's kind of a contrast from the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6. The, the end of chapter 5, the tone of the end of chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, we see we have some reason for hope, some reasons for joy through enjoying our lot in life as a gift from God. And then chapter 6, it's as if you hear these, the tone of despair again when he gets back into some of the enigmas and the hardships and the frustrations that life under the sun often includes. And so as we work our way through Ecclesiastes, it's good for us to remember that this book in many ways is a, is a meditation on the futility of trying to find ultimate meaning in the stuff of life under the sun. These frustrations are meant to point us to where we can find true meaning. So Ecclesiastes chapter 6 is going to teach us more about finding the true meaning of life by reminding us of all the places that we should not look for that true meaning. And so today we're going to survey our way through Ecclesiastes chapter 6, chapter 7, and half of chapter 8. So buckle up. <laughs> we have a lot of material to go through. This is wisdom literature, so it's, it's dense. Uh, sometimes, maybe when Pastor Steve was reading, you might have thought... Um, that, that Yoda was somehow helping the author write some of these phrases. They seem sometimes kind of backwards or upside down or turned around. There's probably a few good ways that we could work through this material, but for our purposes this morning in this sermon, we're going to work our way through these chapters with the organizing idea of accepting life's limitations. Of accepting life's limitations. The author's going to be writing about some frustrations and enigmas of life that flow out of these limitations that we as humans have in this life under the sun. And we're going to organize the sermon into looking at four of the limitations that we experience in life under the sun. 
The first limitation, number one, accept the limitation of wealth in life under the sun. Accept the limitation of wealth. One of the deepest problems that we have as sinful humans is our constant desire to be self-ruled. We like to have it our way right away. We like to kind of have a a tailor-made experience of life. And in our pursuit of self-rule, we can often believe that wealth is going to be give us the power and maybe prosperity will give us the ability to experience kind of this self-rule. But the author dispels the futility of that notion by confronting us with a limitation of wealth and prosperity in this life under the sun. Wealth actually doesn't let us live as if we're godlike. Wealth isn't all that matters. Experiencing prosperity isn't enough to give a fulfilling life. And so in chapter 6, the author comments about the brutality of having wealth and possessions and honor, but then not having the ability to enjoy them. And in verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 6, he sums up that reality, as he calls it this, a grievous evil of having wealth and prosperity and having honor, but then not having the ability to actually enjoy it. It's a grievous evil. We're not told exactly how someone might be hindered from enjoying their wealth or their prosperity or their honor, but one of the most obvious ways could be through the uh, lacking health. I mean, what good is it if you have wealth, but you're confined to a hospital bed? Or so what if you own a jet, but you're, you're too sickly to actually get out and use it? I don't know, I'm speaking over the top here. I don't think any of us own jets in here. But you, you get the idea. As powerful as wealth might be, it cannot be our God. Because true satisfaction and deep joy is not ultimately found through wealth. Life under the sun has these severe limitations, and we see one of those limitations in the regards of wealth. And he drives this point home in the next section in a startling way in verse 3, where he describes a prosperous person in an exaggerated way. And when you see the descriptions there in verse 3, he describes a person who has many children and a long life. Now, in that culture, many children was a sign of, lo- of prosperity, of abundance. And long life was another sign of God's blessing. So in summary, in verse 3, we have a description of exaggerated prosperity, living you know, a long life, having many children, right? I mean, when you look at there, he says, if a man fathers a hundred children, I, I know all the moms and dads here kind of like shudder at that idea, but he's not speaking about literally, he's exaggerating the, the um, exorbitant amount of, of abundance in life, if that were to happen. But the author's conclusion is this that a stillborn child is better off than the one who has no power to enjoy his wealth. Um, As a reader, you're not really expecting that to come. It's almost like he just kind of hits you right in the gut there. Really? I mean, why? And the answer is found in the middle of verse 3. You see this? He says that his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. To have all this wealth and prosperity and honor, but then not having your soul satisfied with good things... The author is saying that a stillborn child is better off in that a stillborn child has more rest and freedom from toil and anxiety and misery than a wealthy person whose soul is never satisfied. And so one of the main ideas here that the author is putting in front of us is the elusive nature of ultimate joy and deep satisfaction in life under the sun. It's elusive. We, we think, hey, if we could buy our happiness... If we just had more honor, then we could have more influence to get our happiness and satisfaction. If we only had more prosperity, then it would have more ability to enjoy satisfaction. But, oh, that's not it. Lasting satisfaction and deep meaning are often elusive to us because of the limitations of life under the sun. Wealth and prosperity are limited. They're not enough. And Ecclesiastes is a realistic reminder of these truths. Our souls are made to enjoy God. 
And so then, deep satisfaction requires understanding these limitations of life under the sun. We can enjoy what prosperity and wealth might give to us, not as the ultimate joy, but understanding that they're gifts from God to us to enjoy that should lead us to a greater enjoyment of Him, the gift giver. Humans, we are, as humans, we are severely limited. We don't like to think about that. We like to, to do more, to build bigger things, to have more. Yet, verse 10 of, of, of Ecclesiastes 6, you see it, it says, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. That's one of those Yoda type of phrases, right? And if that doesn't make sense to you, I'm sorry. That, that, that illustration. What he's talking about here is it's impossible for us as humans in our limited existence to dispute against the almighty God of the universe who knows all. Only God has the full knowledge of all the mysteries that life has. That's what he's talking about in verse 12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. I mean, who knows? No man knows. No person knows this. It eludes us. For who can tell what will be after him under the sun? Only God can do that. It's futile for us to try to argue or dispute the God of the universe. God is the one who gives wealth. God is the one who takes wealth. He's the one who gives health. He's the one who withholds health. And we don't understand all the inscrutable reasons behind God's actions in all of that. Our, our view is limited and our experience of wealth is severely limited. So then, to whatever extent God gives to us our lot in life, whether prosperous or whether it's prosperity or adversity, Our lot in life then is to receive it as a gift from him, but not to receive those gifts as a replacement of him. So to the Christians in this room, right? You say, so what are we supposed to do with all this? Yeah, you just reminded me more of the woe of life. (laughs) Well, maybe there are ways that we should repent of trying to find deepest satisfaction from something other than God. I mean, here we live in a Western context, in an American context, where our culture is pointing to us that wealth is what will bring us satisfaction. But that's not what the book of Ecclesiastes shows us. It shows us the absurdity of following that path. And so perhaps the Christians here in this room need to repent of trying to find their deepest satisfaction in wealth or even in the idea that wealth could satisfy. Maybe you aren't a Christian. Are you willing to admit the futility of trying to find inner fulfillment from wealth yourself? Well, chapter 6 ends with this question, right? It says, who knows what is good? You see it there in verse 12? Who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life? And this takes us then to chapter 7, where the author begins to explore the answer to the question that is asked at the end of chapter 6. So we've learned then the limitation of wealth in life under the sun. And in chapter 7, number 2, we're going to learn to accept the limitations of human perspective, of human perspective, Chapter 7 presents us with a series of proverbial statements. That's why in the ESV it's written, you'll see the lines shown differently. It's this Hebrew poetry. It's in a proverbial type of of way. It's, It's been given to us. The unifying word throughout these proverbial statements is the word better. You see how often it's repeated there? A good name is better than precious ointment. In verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning. In verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. Um, in verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise. That, that word better is what is the unifying theme there throughout these proverbial statements. Chapter 7 tells us some of what is good, what is better in the life that we live here under the sun. And so, limited time today, we're going to move quickly through these proverbial statements. I'm going to do it by organizing them into five lessons. 
Now, I know this is kind of like a sermon inside of a sermon, but I can't apologize for that because that's what the author of Ecclesiastes is doing here, okay? So we're going to work through these proverbial statements that way. We're going to go quickly. We're not exhausting these. I hope this will whet your appetite to go back for more. Lesson 1, verse 1a of 7. Chapter 7, verse 1a. A good name is better than precious ointment. Lesson 1. It is better to be thought well of than to be well off. Lesson 1. It is better to be thought well of than to be well off. A good name is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment is, a, is an indicator of wealth, of prosperity. It takes a lot of money to buy precious ointment in this day. If this is true, right? If a good name is better, to be, better than precious ointment, if it's better to be thought well of than to be well off, how might this proverb change how feverishly we work for wealth? Have we considered the cost of our good name? with our spouse or our children or our friends when we are constantly absent or unavailable because of our pursuit of wealth? Lesson 2, verses, the last half of verse 1 down through verse 4. Lesson 2, your last day is better than your first day. And this is where we all kind of scratch our head and go, really? Your last day is better than your first day? I believe that this, this proverbial lesson ties into the previous statement in that a good name of a person is often not fully realized until their day of death. I mean, it's at the day of death where then people are coming together and then saying all the things that they recognize and see about the person that they valued and appreciated. This proverb is an invitation to be mindful of our last day, which is something that does not come naturally for us, especially in our, in our Western context. We like to try to push that idea away from ourselves. But we will be better served by considering our end of days than filling our days with endless mirth. That's what he's talking about here in this proverb. It's countercultural. But yet the scriptures show us that some of the greatest lessons in life and the deepest moments of satisfaction and significance come through the times of greatest sorrow. We become wiser through hardship. If we're constantly looking for a good time in life, we will end up being fools. So just a question then, are we in danger of becoming fools? Lesson 3, verses 5 through 7. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is a vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Lesson three, pay more attention to the wise, not to the foolish. Pay more attention to the wise, not to the foolish. He's like, oh, come on, that's like common sense. But sadly, common sense is in common practice. And what the author here is pointing out in front of us is that one of the reasons that it's difficult for us to give more attention to the wise is because it hurts. You see here, it says it's better for a man to hear what of the wise? The rebuke of the wise. Not the praise or the commendation of the wise, but the rebuke. Rebukes hurt. They're painful. But at the end of our few days of life under the sun, time spent laughing with fools will be meaningless. It's painful to rebuke, to be rebuked, but it's It's helpful and it's useful for our life under the sun. But then he puts a caution here in verse 7. You say, how does verse 7 work in this? When it talks talks about, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bride corrupts the heart. We must pay more attention to the wise, not to the foolish, but we must be cautious that we don't put too much dependence on human wisdom because even human wisdom can be undone. That's what verse 7 is talking about. Even a wise person can be driven to despair or be tempted by a bribe. And so, yes, there's value there, but yet he cautions us from putting too much value on human wisdom as if that alone is going to give us true, full meaning in life. What are we supposed to do with this lesson? 
Well, I want to speak directly to the children, to the youth here in this church family. Students, college students even. What kind of friendships do you pursue? Are your friends mostly fools? People that are just fun to be around. They're, they're all after having a good time. Or do you pursue friendship with those who will from time to time rebuke you? Now, students, as you think about the friendships that you are pursuing, you understand that it takes a different kind, a different quality of friend who has a reason or who will rebuke you in life. And I want to exhort the youth, the students here in our church family, to take this lesson to heart and apply this as you pursue friendships and relationships in your life. Lesson 4, verses 8 through 10. Patience is better than rashness. Or if you want to use different words, perseverance is better than impetuousness. Those are bigger words, harder to understand. Patience is better than rashness. Our world tells us to pursue the quick hit of pleasure. If we get bored, our society encourages us to look for the next great experience, look, look for the next exciting relationship. I wonder how much this simple truth could make in our how much impact this simple truth could make in our marriages if we embrace the path of patience in our relationships. When we're quick to get angry, see verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. If we find ourselves quick to be angry, it shows just how much foolishness is bound up in our hearts. And impatience is what often lies behind, behind the sentimentality of the good old days. It's impatience because it doesn't want to let the, the days of the, the present be mature and ripen like fruit to see the result that God is bringing about. I know we're moving quickly, but verses 11 and 12, wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of, the wis- of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom pres- preserves the life of him who has it. Lesson five, human wisdom does have some benefit. It does have some benefit. Even though he's indicated that human wisdom is limited, verse 7, right? It can take a bribe, it can lead a person to despair. Nonetheless, human wisdom does have some benefit. Wisdom is what makes prosperity beneficial, right? I mean, what good is it if a fool gets an inheritance? It's much better when a wise person receives an inheritance. And sure, some of our troubles might be fixed with money, at least temporarily. But ultimately, wisdom is what exerts that preserving effect against trouble. Because it doesn't just defer trouble, it actually tries to solve trouble. And say, so what? We've been through these lessons of these proverbial statements here in chapter 7. What are we supposed to do with these? Well, he summarizes them in verses 13 and 14. When he says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The end of these Proverbs, we're simply told this, to consider the immutable, the unchangeable, sovereign work of God. Nothing humans can do will ultimately undo what God has decreed. We are counseled then, what? To be joyful with what God gives. When he gives prosperity, have joy that he has given it to you. And when he gives adversity, consider that and lay it to heart. And so then, pursuing good times we then learn will be endlessly frustrating because God is the one who gives them both. You're not in charge of creating your own good times, ultimately. (laughs) If you think that you're in charge of your own destiny, ultimately, you are a fool. God is God. We are humans. And our, our perspective is limited. 
This truth is meant to make us pause and worship a great and inscrutable God. Number three, the third limitation that we find in this passage is the end of chapter 7, verses 15 through 29, where we're told to accept the limitations of human achievement. So we're told to accept the limitations of human uh, of wealth, of human perspective, and now number three, accept the limitations of human achievement. We might be tempted to think that prosperity in life is a sign of God's good pleasure, and adversity is a sign in life of God's displeasure. That simply isn't true. Look at verse 15 of chapter 7. In my vain life I have seen everything. What is he seen? There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Now, right living matters. He's not discounting that. But we should not depend on our right living as the means of guaranteeing a reward from God. Verse 16 cautions us from endless pursuit of self-righteousness. You see verse 16? Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And every kid in this room is writing this verse down and filing it away for later for mom and dad, right? The Bible says, don't be overly righteous, mom. Dad, it says, don't make yourself too wise. What was he saying here? Well, verse 17, look at that. It warns against giving way to unbridled evil doing. And so you might be thinking, well, then I guess a little bit of evil is okay then, right? No, you're missing his point. His point is talking about excessiveness in life. For instance, someone might think that they're going to get ahead in life by doing a lot of good things. And so they give themselves to self-righteous exercise only to find out that life doesn't really go by that kind of rule. They do all sorts of self-righteous things and life keeps going bad. And and finally they get to a point like, forget it, it's not worth it. And they abandon themselves then to pursuing the delights and pleasures of this world and going after evil. And the author here is pointing out that both paths are fruitless. Listen, you can't earn yourself into the good life before God by self-righteous living, and you can't insulate yourself and try to pursue the good life on your own doing by pursuing evil. Both paths are fruitless. Neither good deeds or evil deeds will give true satisfaction and meaning in life. Only God can. So what do we do then? Well, he points us to fearing God. See verse 18? It is good that you should take hold of this, and and from that withhold not your hand, Why? For the one who fears God shall come out of them both. The question for us this morning is, do you fear God? Does your life give evidence that you live in reverential awe of a holy, almighty God? The remainder of chapter 7 seems to develop the ideas of these limitations of human achievement. Or even our best efforts to pursue wisdom are still not sufficient. That's what he's writing about in verse 23 and 24. And then verses 25 down to the end, verse 29, he tells us that one of the reasons that human achievement is limited is because of the problem with humankind. We're sinful. We're sinful. And so even our best efforts fall woefully short. There's not a a righteous man in all the earth. And he finds that both men and women are sinful. Both are disappointing. And so as you read this section, you can hear the drips of cynicism kind of falling in the background. The reason that both men and women are sinful isn't God's fault. You see verse 29 of chapter 7. He says, see this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We are sinful. We are the fall. We are the problem. So then at this point, you might be thinking, well, this is a terrible Sunday to come to church. Because all you've done is talk about these limitations of life and the futility of our pursuit of finding joy and pleasure and all these things that we think are going to offer that. What we need, I think you're going to find this, is what we need is, some, is we need an exception to these limitations in life. 
If only we could find an exception to those limitations. Well, praise God, we have one. His name is Jesus. There is a person who is the exception to all of these limitations. His name is Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 4, he's described this way. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, but here's the exception, yet without sin. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin, but here's the exception, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We need an achievement that, we need something more than just human achievement of our own doing. We need something of God's achieving and that's given to us in Christ. So all these frustrations that we see in Ecclesiastes, as we look at it as New Testament Christians, as we look back into this book, what we're encouraged to remember is that we have been given the greatest exception of these limitations of life. His name is Jesus Christ. Are you still depending on your own achievements to gain peace with God? Ecclesiastes is just, is just going to prove to you again and again it will not work. Would you embrace Jesus to be your greatest achievement? The gift of Christ. Are you depending on wealth to satisfy you? Would you, would you just for, forget that notion and would you instead turn to Jesus to be your greatest wealth, your greatest treasure? God has given us Jesus Christ to be our righteousness, to redeem us from the slavery of sin and to set us free in a relationship with God. And it's through knowing God that we find deepest satisfaction and greatest enjoyment, which is what we were citing together this morning, our memory verse as a church family of Psalm 1611. You make known to me what? The path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures, not just for five minutes or for ten seconds, but forevermore. So far, we've been feeling the pain of those limitations. And yet what we understand is that God has given us the exception to those limitations in Christ. Chapter 8 leads us to this last limitation then. Accept the limitations of human wisdom. Accept the limitations of human wisdom. Which, by the way, tying this back into our, 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 our considering Christ, Christ is the wisdom of God given to us in, in human flesh. And even as we look at the limitations of human wisdom, Christians' hearts rejoice in that we have been given the exception to that limitation in Christ, the wisdom of God in flesh. Right? The first 15 verses of chapter 8 are simultaneously showing us the value of wisdom, but yet at the same time the limits of wisdom. And it's done in verses 2 through 9 by talking about living with the king. Now, I don't think any of us have had to do that. But you can imagine that it would be difficult to live with a king, with a ruler. Right? I mean, you need to say the right thing at the right time in the right way all the time. Because the king has power and authority and can do what he wants. And if he's displeased with you, his anger will be you know, taken out on you. Right? We've heard the phrase, off with your head, right? Only the king or the queen can say that. And so he writes about how wisdom is helpful in, in enabling a person to live wisely with someone of power. But one of the enigmas experienced under God's rule in life under the sun is that wicked people also receive honor. Wisdom doesn't necessarily get you ahead. Wicked people also receive honor. Look at verse 10 of chapter 8. Why is it that those who do evil are praised? Why is it that they are the ones that get an honorable burial? I mean, they get an honorable burial in the city where they even do the evil. 
Then I saw the wicked buried, verse 10. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also was vanity. Another enigma experienced in life under the sun is the fact that judgment for the wicked often seems to come late. If ever, according to our perspective. That's verse 11. The sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. This is one of the deep frustrations of life is that things go wrong in life and then it doesn't seem like they're ever set right. So what the author does know is that the answer lies outside of his perspective, outside of human wisdom. All he can do is trust in an all-wise God. Look at verse 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who what? Who fear God. There it is again, that idea of fearing God. Because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. A shadow lasts for just a moment. Just when the, just when the light is in the, in the right spot with the object that it casts a shadow on and then it's gone. So despite what happens to God's people in life under the sun, those who fear God will ultimately know God's eternal blessing. And this is where we feel the rub as Christians because it requires faith to believe this. Faith. From our perspective, it often appears like evildoers have the blessed life while, while God's people are the ones that are oppressed. And yet in some regard, as it pertains to life under the sun, that's true. But that's not the end of the story. The meaning, true meaning in life under the sun is to live for the life to come. And so then we find ourselves here at the end of this portion of Scripture as we get to verse 15, 16, and 17. In verse 15, he tells us then what we should do as a result of this. These limitations in life that we feel pressing on us. Verse 15, I commend joy. I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. You say, well, that just seems fatalistic. I would like to change our understanding of that. It's not fatalistic. It is accepting God's rule in life under the sun. We aren't God. Our wealth is limited. Our human perspective is limited. Our, our achievement is limited. Even our best application of wisdom is limited. God is inscrutable. We can't figure out all the twists and turns of life. It's been said that God does 10,000 things with one thing, and you know maybe three of them. So what are we supposed to do? We'll get wrapped up on the axle, trying to figure it all out, or what? Verse 15, I commend joy. Submit yourself under his right rule. He is king. He is God. Well, trust him. When he gives adversity, consider it. When he gives prosperity, enjoy it. And that's where he commends us in verse 15. And then verse 16 and 17, Then I saw all the work of God. How does he describe the work of God in verse 16? That man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. <laughs> However, much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out. And so where this leads us then, where the author leads us, and where he leaves us here this morning, is a fresh reminder that of God's godness, of our creatureliness. And that some of the frustrations that we feel in this life is perhaps because we are trying to be God. 
We're trying to seek satisfaction in wealth or human achievement or wisdom or, or our perspective, and it eludes us over and over again. The Puritan pastor, Stephen Charnock, he was a 17th century pastor, he writes this, We burn with a desire to settle ourselves, but mistake the way and build castles in the air which vanish like bubbles of soap in water. Our enjoyment in life does not come through having more or knowing more. True enjoyment in life comes from receiving from God's hand all that he gives to us, whether prosperity or adversity. God gives to us what he sovereignly deems best. And because of Jesus, right, the exception to those limitations, we can, be, we can know that he is working all things for our good and for our eternal joy. And this is why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How do we know that God is actually working for our joy, even in life under the sun? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So then where are we left? Verse 15. And I commend joy. But Christians know that that joy is anchored in Jesus Christ. If you don't know that joy, it would be our desire for you to confess your sin, give up your love affair with sin, and embrace Jesus to be your greatest joy. Have you accepted the gift of Christ that God offers? Let's pray.